Ben Bernanke was head of the Fed during the 2008 crash. And, um, uh, you know, he, according to him, he saved saved the, the crash. Um, there's a lot of people who don't believe that. Anyway, a reporter was asking him, was that tax money that you spent, you know, that the Fed expended on QE and, and reviving the economy, was that going to be debt that we have to pay off later? And this debt now is enormous. And they're talking about generations having to pay it off, generations. Anyway, Ben Bernanke said, no, it's not tax money. And then he pauses and he thinks, we simply use the computer to mark up the, uh, and then he has to think a bit more. This is taken from a recording, right? From the uh, size of the account. <laughs> Magic. Yeah. Magic. Oh, dear. So you don't need to print money, you can just add a couple of zeros to a spreadsheet and you've problem solved. Why why is he called helicopter Ben? Oh, you know, the the, the whole thing of um dropping physical oh. money uh from a helicopter you know, to, <laughs> into the street to uh, you know, to, to sort of prime the um the, the financial system. <laughs> The only thing anyone can deny is that there's a, there's a good possibility that we're going to face some kind of a reckoning and that things can't just keep on going the way they are forever. And I guess um, one of the things that Guy's been particularly interesting to me and, and Ian, he's been good enough to share some emails with us. I was fortunate enough to see one that, that Guy had sent to Ian. And this was about sort of things, you know, strategies that you've made or that you're following as a professional investor in terms of your response to what you see of, of this risk and what the best thing to do in relation to equities and investments and property and that sort of stuff. And um, so I'm, I'd love Guy and Ian to comment more on that, on what the response is and what, what a sensible strategy might be. And again, we have to emphasize that we're, we're not providing any kind of guidance to people. This is just a conversation. And just in case you're wondering, it's Dr. Ian Story, mathematician, lecturer in information systems at Torrens University, and Guy West, professional investor and chess master on the line with me. Um, Guy, you know, how would you sum up your strategy to keep your head above water in these uncertain times? Well, firstly, it's a very, very tricky thing to do to crash-proof yourself financially. It's very tricky because you don't know whether the the next crisis is going to be a deflationary event or a, a you know a hyperinflationary event right so obviously if there's going to be a deflationary event um, where all your asset classes plunge but without inflation so you know property gets sold off equities get sold off and so on then you're back to your old cash is king, which has been the sort of mantra for most past um, crashes. You know, if, if you went to cash, then uh, you came out of it very well. Right. However, we, we now have this horrible spectre of a potential hyperinflationary event, in which case, if there's a financial crisis which results in... Uh, you know, in hyperinflation, where the value of your savings just gets eroded away, then that would require a completely different sort of defensive posture to a, a deflationary crisis. Yep. And it's it's not at all clear which way things will go. So 
you, you've got to come up with a strategy which kind of recognises the, the risks of either particular scenario happening. So personally, my strategy is sort of a multi-pronged thing. The first thing is um, it, under either scenario, you probably, in, in a crisis, you don't want to have debt because, you know, if you lose your job or money becomes hard to come by, even though you might say, oh, well, at worst, you, you can just default on your debt. Normally, there are repercussions from defaulting on your debt. For instance, if you, if you own a house and you have a mortgage, which is your debt, you can't just go, oh, well, you know, we're all stuffed. I'm not going to pay it back. You might lose that house. You know, yeah. so, so I think you need to be debt free in any kind of crisis. My own strategy is, you know, I've, I've paid off all my debts, so I don't, um, I don't have a mortgage anymore. I, I understand that not everyone, you know, is in a position to do that, but most people are in a position to make decisions about how big their mortgage is and how quickly they pay it off, um, as opposed to spending the money on something else. Yeah. Elimination of debt. The second thing is, I'm trying to move to quality in in all areas. So my main investments are, are in the share market. So for me, that means selling anything which is not high quality in terms of uh, its its uh, profitability. So get, getting out of anything speculative, uh, getting out of any companies that have high debt level, high debt levels, and um, selling most uh, stocks which don't pay dividends. So I'm. I'm Mainly trying to zero in on on companies that are profitable year in year out. They're still going to be profitable even if there's a, a massive economic implosion. Yep. So you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about things like you know Woolworths. Not so much the banks because even though there are probably some banks that are in inverted commas too big to fail, you can get massive um, problems occurring in the banking sector in in times of crisis. I think your sort of bricks and mortar companies, you know, your, your sort of retailers um, who are selling things like food and alcohol and so on, that that they are more sort of solid than a than a bank in a crisis. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one thing I'm doing. Um, uh, I, I know a lot of people believe that property is a, a very good investment and, and that you know, over, the, over the long haul it always goes up, um, which is true. And it's also true of equities. But I've completely um, eliminated my exposure to property because in a financial crisis, um, liquidity becomes extremely important. Mm. The, the problem with property is that it's it's very illiquid. You, you can't just buy and sell houses according to the evolving situation. Mm. There are huge um, transactional costs involved. For me, property is not a liquid enough um, safety net in a crisis. Although, yeah, yeah. And, um, and and also, I think if you if you're relying on rent from property, well, if you if no one can pay the rent, if no one can afford to pay the rent, then then that becomes an issue as well. And, yeah, and and even and it's it's happening in America as well. There's these. Um, you know, eviction moratoriums, which are kind of causing, I think in the case of America, causing markets, to, the property markets to be stronger than they would be otherwise because uh, landlords are not allowed to evict yet. Yeah. Well, yes, that's that's true. Um, the, the other problem with property is there are significant holding costs associated with property. Mm. So, um, yep. you know, you've got, you've got rates, you've got maintenance and so on. Yep. 
and um, in in a depression or a you know a severe economic downturn, you don't want to be exposed to ongoing costs. You know when money's hard to come by, as, as you say, you might lose your rental income, but you're, you're probably not going to get rate relief, and um, you're still going to have to do repairs and so on. So yeah. it's it's a, a potentially deteriorating asset. Yep. I know most people regard property as absolutely guilt-edged and everything, but, you know, that's it, that, that's sort of when times are good. If, if things go bad, I personally wouldn't want to be um, stuck holding too much property. And there's so, so much um, variation in property, isn't there? There's good quality, which will, you know, yeah, probably continue yeah. to hold its value and go up in even in a uh, really bad time. But then there's plenty of property, probably the bulk of property, which won't be so attractive, won't be as good quality, and will potentially get hammered, especially yeah, if, you, if you're struggling to, to utilise it, if you're struggling to, to rent it. Yes, yeah. The other thing I'm doing, which is which is sort of controversial, and uh, some of my friends have laughed at this, is um, because I've, I've got rid of my um, debts, what I'm doing is I'm buying possessions. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. sort of buying all the things that I would, would yeah. want to have while times are good. Yeah. And, and that way, um, you know, if, if things do turn to shizer, then I can, um, yeah, if there's, you know, I'll at least be sort of sitting around with, with nice things, which I got when times were good. Because, uh, as we know, in a Great Depression or something, you, you, you can't sort of go out and necessarily get the nice things that you could have got when times were good. And not even just the Great you know, great Depression, but COVID, you know, supply chains breaking down and shortages of semiconductors and all this sort of hard-to-get cars, you know, delays uh, on getting just a standard car yeah. from South Korea. You know, the, the, yeah. the, you can see it all over the place. There's, there's, um, that's an interesting advice. And, and just something I throw in, and I don't mean this in a ridiculing way at all, but... I mean, I was up at Mansfield visiting a friend. This was before we went into lockdown. And we were driving through some of the back country between Seymour and Mansfield. And he was pointing out he sells farm supplies. And he said, you know, there's a lot of people up here. who He calls them preppers. It's a bit like uh, in America, people um, building bomb shelters and, and storing cans mm. of soup. There's people who, who were already doing this before the, the pandemic hit. There was a category of people who are stocking up on things because of their concerns about the uncertain future. And I guess, in a way, that's that's what you're talking about, Guy. Yeah, pro- probably not as extreme as buying um, guns and ammo and tins of food. but um, <laughs> Which, yeah, which like are the things that have gone up for sale. Ammo's gone up a lot in uh, <laughs> yeah. in America. However, um, yeah, look, I, I, I agree with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily ridicule people who do who do take those sort of cautions. But in, in my case, it's more just getting high-quality furnishings, buying your leather lounge suite now. Don't, don't sort of you know, put it off for a couple of years because it could be that further down the track that, that will be an unattainable luxury. The point is that when, when a crisis hits, we are all going to lose money. There's, there's, no, there's no way around that, I think. There's, there is no defensive strategy that, that will prevent us from well there, there might be but it'd just be luck that you happen to find the you know the one asset that goes up while everything else goes down mm. um, exactly given, right given that we'll, we'll all be materially worse off if you can get the the things that you want now while it's while it's attainable i think it, from my point of view it seems to be to make sense and to be a sensible thing to do so 
So well, um, any time I buy something new, I, I make sure it's a high quality item that I'll be happy with for a long time into the future. Mm. Yeah, if there is uh, hyperinflation, then the only thing that's going to hold its value is physical assets. C correct. Um, that's right. Yeah. So f physical assets, I think, will, will become you know a, a real um, uh, yeah so something that that will be highly sought after. Yeah, and and physical assets without debt. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I was just going to ask you both, we talked about hyperinflation. It sounds like of the two scenarios of, of um, deflation and hyperinflation, it sounds like that the thing that is this group anyway, that you and that Guy and Ian, are, it sounds like you, you'd be supporting hyperinflation as more likely than deflation. I would say it's more likely. I can't really see the scenario of deflation um, happening with the way with the orders of money that are in the system, mm. uh, but I know some people are worried because it's kind of happening now. It's staying too low, and people are wondering why. But um, to go back to what you would do if there was a, a crash, what you do to hold off? Yeah, you've got to measure the risks of all the possibilities, so including hyperinflation and deflation, and things just going on along as they have been yeah yeah um, yeah that's right if you if you knew if you knew for instance that there was going to be hyperinflation then it, it's easy you just put all your assets yeah. in gold and you sit absolutely back and, yeah, yeah it's easy but, yeah so, so gold even and i i maintain even a bit of bitcoin as a possibility possibly because yeah, well, <laughs> well you know the financial stability board which is a, a international organisation that Australia has signed up to, Argentina has signed up to, signed up to as well, and they're uh, prioritising stability in time of a crash. Now, most people believe that a certain amount of your money in the bank is guaranteed, but there's a, a group called the Citizens Party, and I've, I've been reading some of their propaganda, and, but one point that they do make is that if you look at the law really carefully... What it says is that the two priorities of protecting depositors' assets, their deposits, and protecting the economy are both paramount concerns. So APRA has two concerns, right? So when it comes to the, the big four getting really hit, they could just take your deposits and use them to pay off their debts. And apparently... There's no real law, because the law is, is in a legal limbo, it may be that they don't have to give you anything back. Yeah. And, and look at what they've been able to do with emergency powers anyway, Ian. So that's another thing in the mix that you have to have. But what Guy was saying is that if one of those horrible events occurs, then don't count winning as getting more money than you've got now. Count winning as getting more money than the average guy will get after after you go through the other side. It being a smaller loser. Yeah. <laughs> being a smaller loser. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could get lucky, like Guy said, and, you know, everybody... <laughs> I, said, I said to my mates, no, you've got to get through the other side, and they said, no, what you do is you pick the winner. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think they were joking. And this is the thing. I mean, it, it's coming. It, it is a theme that sort of comes up. It's come up in this conversation. Is that really no one knows and what the future is? And Guy said it earlier, and you've said it to me, Ian, separately when we spoke on the phone 
uh, a couple a few days ago. But but anyone who tells you that they know what the future is is literally insane because no one knows. And yet we, we live in a world where people pay a lot of money to people who supposedly can give them useful advice. But you know, in this environment, it it sort of calls that into question because there's so much volatility and there's so much uncertainty. And on top of all of the the sort of layered cake of of the financial system and Bitcoin and property and banks being fragile and hyperinflation and money printing, quantitative easing, is the pandemic and super variants. The possibility that I read recently that uh, unless they're suggesting now that the third jab that might be required to bolster people's defences against uh, against things like the Delta variant in Europe and in England, there are researchers saying, well, that we shouldn't be giving that third jab to, to our population. We should be giving it to the third world because they're not vaccinated at all. And if, we, if they're not protected, then they will be the place where the, the super variant emerges and then we could be back to square one with our vaccines. In other words, they're rendered obsolete and we're all back to square one. Point being that there is so much uncertainty. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a situation which has been so uncertain as now. Yeah, both financially and in terms of health, absolutely. Yeah, in in um, so many ways, in people's and, outlooks, and what, in people's, what you can expect from your life, what you can expect for your kids, what you can expect as, you know, access to education, access to travel, access to, to moving outside for five kilometres from where you live. That's right, and we've got big geopolitical shifts happening with um, the rise of China and the the Middle East um, changing and so mm-hmm. on. And and then uh, at the same time, we've got all these environmental concerns. Um, That's right. Yeah, the the, the yeah the big one at the moment is obviously um, climate change, and before that there was the ozone layer and so on. And um, and yeah, we've got sort of all this sort of degradation and waste going into the oceans and so on. So it is, it is a time of extreme um, unpredictability, volatility, and a fair bit of fear. I think, yep. which which makes it doubly bizarre that we're <laughs> that we're going through this extremely bullish period in terms of markets. It's I don't know. It just it feels very surreal to me. I just feel like um, it it can't keep going on the same trajectory for very much longer. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, lockdowns, you know, we touched on it before, but lockdowns have got to be extremely costly. And we don't, it hasn't really been tallied up what the cost of, of, of these lockdowns is. I mean, they say it's, you know, I think they say it's in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars a day for Greater Melbourne, just in Greater Melbourne. But when you combine two cities or a whole state and two, the two most popular cities in the country, you know, that's got to be having a, a big effect on costs. There's talk about food costs going up because of disruptions to the supply chain and to the places in, you know, factories in Western Sydney where a lot of food is processed and then sent out around the country. So, you know, so much uncertainty. Well, one thing I wanted to ask, and it's kind of been touched on, but if hyperinflation is is considered the more likely scenario than deflation, then is crypto or gold... What would you be doing if you're not going to hoard cash as your backstop, your safety place? Then what would you do instead? If you so you've got out of the equity market, you're sitting on some cash. Gold. Would you buy gold? Would you buy silver? Would you buy Bitcoin? Or would you buy all three? Personally, I'm I'm extremely skeptical about cryptocurrencies because um, I, I don't think that they are really currencies. There are various functions that a currency should have. It, 
one thing is to be able to use it as a medium of exchange. Now, if you take a doge coin or whatever they're called yeah. you know, down to your local milk bar and uh, and try to get a, a litre of milk or something, you, you know, just don't fancy your chances. And, and another thing that a currency should do is be a, a reasonably stable store of value. Now, realistically, you can't have currencies that sort of fluctuate up and down by hundreds of percent. It's just not a viable way to, to, to run the world, yeah. to, to have uh, currencies that do that. So if, if you look at these cryptocurrencies, and there are thousands of them now, or, or certainly hundreds and hundreds of them, hmm. to me, most of them are, are just purely speculative instruments. So, so to me, uh, I, I, and I'm not, and I'm not talking about um, blockchain technology per se. I'm, I'm sure that blockchain technology has a, a lot of very useful applications. And, and that it is going to, um, you know, make make major waves in in, in the sort of evolution of, of human history. But uh, as far as all these hundreds of uh, altcoins, as they call them, you know, that aren't Bitcoin but they're cryptos, as far as they go, I, I think they're just speculative instruments. It's like a, um, a glorified game of pass the parcel, and mm. I don't think that that's something that you would want to do as a safety net against hyperinflation, I, I think it's something you would want to do the way that you would maybe want to go to a casino and um, right. you know, have a little flutter. Like, it's a gambling activity. If, you, if you've got money that you want to gamble, by all means, you, you could do extremely well. But if you're a normal, regular citizen trying to protect themselves against a possible kind of black swan event or, or at least a very bad you know, economic meltdown, they are not an appropriate way to do it because I think that if there was such an event, these speculative altcoins will be one of the first things to, to plummet. I mean, if we're, if we're talking, you know, major hyperinflationary event, it's going to have all kinds of economic um, ramifications and there's going to be a lot of fear, um, people's, you know, savings being wiped out and, um, you know, sort of pensioners out on the street protesting and so on. It's going to, it's going to get very ugly. Things like that, oh, well, I think, will... will, will Those bloody with, pensioners. They're <laughs> rebel rousers. Um, pensioners, you know, with, with shooting guns out on the streets of uh, Detroit, you know, <laughs> shooting up buildings. But um, seriously, I don't, I, I don't think that Bitcoin should be used in that way. I, I think it, it could be a good sort of punting medium. Okay. But gold, gold, on the other hand, I think is a better, you know, it's a more solid, at least it's tangible. It, it has that very, very venerable tradition of being a store of value. Mm. Um, you, you may not be able to take a gold nugget down to buy a litre of milk, but it, it is it is very, it is nevertheless very liquid um, in terms of being able to very easily turn it into cash if you need it. It should hold its value in, a, in an inflationary scenario a lot better than cash. You know, if there's hyperinflation, by definition, cash is becoming less valuable and that, that should push up the price of gold. The funny thing is that at the moment, um, gold is sort of just sitting around going nowhere. So mm. it means that at the moment, even though we're beginning to see signs of inflation, there's something not quite working about that relationship. Uh, can I give my point of view on, sure, on go. Bitcoin? I guess I'm kind of swayed by Minsky saying, I think I've said this before, everyone can create money. The problem is to get it accepted. 
Yeah. So um, yeah. if Bitcoin is accepted as money, it's it's actually money. You know, I have no problem with that. But where I do have a problem um, is that there's so many others that have just risen up to try to compete with it. So it's become a speculative area. Yeah. And if it was just Bitcoin by itself, I would kind of weight it one to five. So now I'm not giving investment advice at all. This is just my weighting in my head of what it could be worth, right? So about a fifth of gold. But given that so much speculation, I would say it's like a, a tenth or fifteenth or twenty-fifth of gold, you know. I think there is some hedge value in it because it's not held by a, a, a Federal Reserve, by a central bank, mm. and that really interests me. But perhaps I'm being, I'm being persuaded by the niceness of the ideas, you know, Minsky's ideas that it's still currency and this idea that it can act as a hedge. You know, they're kind of academic. We don't really know. And also, I suppose, the idea that, you know, there's a lot of millennials and younger people who, who really like cryptos. And, you know, if there's enough weight behind it, then that in itself will will add to its its value as a safe haven. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. There's a lot of intergenerational politics involved in um, the, the argument of, you know, between um, gold and silver and uh, cryptocurrencies. Mm. And housing too. Housing in Australia, oh boy. Yeah. It's really, right. really tough issue. I think when, you, when you're looking for hedges against a, a bad um, economic implosion, you have to try to sort of take those social politics out of it and, and look at it in a, in a very analytical way, look at it in a, in a more cold-eyed way. And I think that whilst at the moment the concept of cryptocurrencies is, is very fashionable with the younger set and so on, if it proves that, that all the altcoins are just a, a big sort of speculative casino and it collapses, that they'll move on to something else. There'll be some other way of um, poking fun at the baby boomer generation and uh, and, and, and sort of um, you know, well, creating the, their own identity, their own the resentment identity. The resentment over housing is palpable. And you kind of can't... And it should be too, I think. You can't blame people. The difference in the ability between the, the boomers and the millennials is palpable. It's leading to resentment. And it's... It shouldn't be. I've always argued the job situation is worsening and that people are finding it hard to, to get housing. I don't feel like, as a boomer, I'm to blame personally. Even though I'm relatively comfortable, I would like that to be the situation for all Australians, all millennials. Agreed. Well, it's, it's sort of to do with your age, isn't it? And, and when you entered the property market, it's amazing what people yep. could get things. If they bought a house or houses in the 1970s, almost anywhere in Australia and sat on it, you know, you've just done so well. But if you weren't around to do that in the 1970s, and, and in fact, you're, you know, you were born in, say, 1990 or later, it's, it's a different beast that you're, that you're playing with, particularly the last trying to enter the market in the last 15 years in Australia. It's been a very, very strong market. So then you can see, you know, why cryptos are attractive because they're yeah. something that I, can be- I guess, I guess, like, ethically, the thing I would say is that 
we don't have a right to preach to millennials. No, well, it's just it's just a luck thing, isn't it? It's just it's luck. It's just when you when you were able to enter the market when you were when you first had full employment and and got a mortgage for for most people. Absolutely, yeah. Well, at the moment, any any millennial who put their savings into Bitcoin when it was ten dollars, you know, we we shouldn't feel too sorry for them. But um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of young people out there who who are really. you know, struggling to amass any kind of assets just because, um, you know, the, the only two asset classes that have absolutely outperformed, you know, in the last couple of decades have been property and, uh, to a lesser extent, shares, although they're making up for some lost time now. Mm. But uh, property is the big one, and um, it's, such a, it's such a big item that you can either afford to get into the property market or you can't. At, you know, at, at least with shares, you can buy a few shares, yeah, yeah, I wish I was as knowledgeable. I had the depth of knowledge that you do on which shares are, are what, which ones are holding lots of debt and all that kind of thing. I guess I could look into it. I get bored with it, but it's becoming an issue I need to take a lot more care of. Yeah, I suppose that's what stockbrokers are there for. But the, the trouble with that is that um, I've had stockbrokers who were not entirely impartial and also... Um, ones that weren't very wise and, you know. Well, I, I know of accountants and I know of a number of groups of people who lost huge amounts of money during 2008. Yeah. Because because the wisdom was, you you know, you buy into housing, you, you buy into this while it's going up. When you put together stocks that are all going up at the one time, they're the ones that also all go down at the one time, you know. Or pretty close too. So if they're correlated, yeah, they're the most dangerous ones. And yeah. people were doing that. They were putting all their money in the ones that go up the fastest. I remember back in late 2007, there was talk about there being a problem with subprime mortgages in America. And so there was kind of, it wasn't a sudden bit of news that, that was the thing that the straw that broke the camel's back and triggered the, the big market fall. It was sort of happening over a six month period. But I think there were just so many people who were so, you know, who loved the sort of bull market and just didn't want to believe it. And just it suited them. The greed sentiment outweighed the the uh, fear sentiment. Um, well, and it's spent, kind of like the same thing now. There's like, plenty of warning signs about, about um, a potential crash now. But at the moment, greed is outweighing the fear. Yeah, George, I, I George think w, right. George W. Bush really pushed heavily for people to get into housing. There's radio recordings of him telling people of colour to buy housing, Mm. uh, telling uh, students to buy housing because it's never going to go down. Mm. And then around 2007, he got really sheepish. (laughs) Of course, when he he turns up, uh, who was the good Paulson? Um, Somebody Paulson, the head of the Treasury. Yeah. And he turns up, I mean, his eyes were like, like a deer in the headlights. You know, you could tell he was totally, he was, can I say, shit scared of what was happening. It was just a terrible situation. It's such a volatile situation. It really is very hard to kind of know because you don't want to, you also don't want to panic. You don't want to sort of do something which is so extreme in response to what you perceive as this, you know, very precarious situation with a lot of downside risk. So you don't want to panic and make decisions and do things which which really paint yourself into a corner and, and then you regret. So it's kind of, it is a complicated thing because there's just having such a, 
divide between the hyperinflation outlook and the deflation outlook. I mean, that, that's, that in itself is really quite a tricky thing to accommodate in responding to any of this. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're exactly right. It's, it's very, very hard to know what the right move is. And if you do something extreme, you, you could easily get it wrong. I mean, I've, I've cost myself um, a, a lot by, by being too bearish over the last, um, well, but basically since the COVID crash um, about, you know, a bit over a year ago, is it now? Mm. I should have done what one of my good friends who's an investor in Thailand did, which is he basically was buying as the market was imploding. And I, I was worried that we might be seeing a rerun of 1929 where, where the market crashed, then it rebounded, and then the real crash happened over the next eight or nine years. And so I... I didn't get back into the market. I, I sold it the, you know, as soon as things started to go bad and, and basically escaped okay. But, but uh, he actually bought in and, of course, he's done extremely well by... Um, he's, he's, he's made by 30% buying, uh, on average. Yeah, yeah, like, that's right, a, a huge killing. I've been sitting with a lot of cash on the sidelines now for over a year and, and the opportunity cost, you know, if I'd actually um, still been holding some of the shares that I actually got out of, they've now gone back, exceeded, you know, they've bounced back the 20% they lost. Um, I got out probably when most of them were down just a few percent. They went down 20, 25%, some of them. Yep. They've now regained all of that and they're up, you know, another 10, 15% above that, some of them. Yep. Yeah, it's been a massive opportunity cost by being too bearish. So it's a, it's a really hard call. I think you, you just have to be... You just have to be aware of all the different possibilities and, as you say, not, not be too extreme in any particular belief. But I, I do think you, you can't go too far wrong trying to you know, head for quality assets. Like that. I think you know, in, in times of unpredictability and uncertainty where there's, there's quite obviously a, a risk of some bad event happening in the um, financial world, you're not going to go too far wrong by just making sure that all your assets are high quality ones rather than speculative and and that, that's why i don't really want any um exposure to the crypto because i i don't well certainly not the altcoins anyway because I, I i feel like they're not at heart a quality asset i think they're a speculative asset they're not something that um is necessarily going to be around through good times and bad i would say just bitcoin um, yeah, yeah. If you're going to go, so that's yeah. probably the safest one because yeah. at least at least Bitcoin is is a little bit useful as a medium of exchange. You can actually yep. buy things yep. with Bitcoin in a lot of places. Mm. Whereas if you try and buy something with Dogecoin or something, you, you're not going to have much luck. Yeah. Talking with Guy West, professional investor and chess master, and Dr. Ian Story, mathematician and lecturer in information systems at Torrens University. Just to sort of wrap things up, because I think it's, it's a very interesting time that we find ourselves in. This really is quite unprecedented. I mean, just, just lockdowns alone are a social experiment that's never been done before with all sorts of effects on people. And also the pandemic is not over. There's variants. There's, we thought a year ago that we'd be out. We're talking about, oh, we'd be back to international travel by, by Christmas last year. Well, you know, we, we won't be back to international travel by this Christmas there's so much uncertainty at the moment, and I think it is, it's really tricky for people to digest all this. It's quite bewildering in a way, really, to try to get your head around it and try to make 
decisions that are balanced. But I think that's what you've got to do. And, and there's complexity to stuff. There is complexity. I was just going to ask you guys to wrap up, though. If you had to kind of rate it, I'm thinking of, I think uh, Ian sent me some links from this guy, Michael Big Short Burry. He said it's the greatest bubble of all time uh, and in all things by two orders of magnitude. There is the potential for really a, on the scale of 29 or even worse. Ian, you said to me a few days ago when we spoke on the phone that that's, is that 100 times worse than the GFC? You were saying two orders of magnitude? Yeah, Michael Burry was the guy who predicted the GFC and who was in the movie The Big Short. He was telling his investors, no, no, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And they kept saying, sell, sell, sell. And he wouldn't sell in the dramatisation. Yep. So he's the guy who predicted it. That's why he's getting a lot of um, attention. So I don't know if that's going to happen. You know, it, But I sent it to you because he's now predicting a two orders of magnitude worse event. Now, that's not two times. And one order of magnitude is 10 times. Two orders of magnitude is 100 times. Right. What does that actually mean? I mean, the, the Great Depression, you know, was <laughs> it was pretty pretty bad. You know, you, you, you oh no, then, then the GFC, then the GFC. Uh, okay, so the, the GFC was pretty terrible too. Uh, what, what does a hundred times worse than the GFC actually mean? <laughs> I don't know. I'm guessing <laughs> hyperinflation, fiat money going to zero, uh, or, or very close to. So that's a complete and collapse. I'm, that's a complete collapse of the financial system. Well, it is, but um, he's also investing in things. Like, he's shorting Tesla at the moment. But I think, I think that's, probably a, that's probably a good move because there's, there's a lot of um, companies at the moment that are clearly the valuations are extremely stretched. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Tesla hasn't this. made any money and all of that. Yeah, it, it probably will, but, but the market capitalisation yeah. that it's carrying is quite insane. With this thing of an event that's 100 times worse than the, the GFC, I'm, for me, I'm, I'm not sure that that's something like that's all that useful because it, it's very hard to quantify. Like, no, you know, no, how, how, do you, how do you envisage something well, that's 100 times worse? Like, well, what I would say, to, well, and, and to wrap up here, hmm. what I would say is educate yourself on the difference between fiat money and debt and try to get a handle on how money comes through the Treasury, through the Fed, um, here, you know, the, the central bank, um, to the banks and how they work. Um, one last little point, though. I think if we still had, uh, what, they, what was the banking law that was dissolved by Clinton? Um, uh, there's two names to it. They separated out different types of banks, investment banks, Glass Steagall. Yeah, but I would say make up your own mind. And I think the key is understanding how fiat money and debt interact with each other. That's a good good tip, I think. And Guy, good, bad, ugly, are you not asking for the crystal ball because we've said that, you know, predicting the future is impossible. Do you really think it could be that bad as, as the likes of Burry are, are predict, predicting? Or do you think there's some middle way out of this. I mean, it, to me, you can almost discount the good thing that we're, that we're on the, you know, we're just going to have a bull run that just goes for, you know, the next 10 years and everyone makes a fortune who's in it, who hasn't sat on the sidelines on their, on their deflating pile of cash. Or, Which is me at the moment. Let's discount the, the good one that's sort of, that 
So we don't think it's going to just keep on going indefinitely. There has to be a stop. There has to be some, a, a reckoning of some form. So would you, do you favour the kind of extreme 100 times worse than GFC or somewhere, somewhere, between, somewhere less than that, somewhere more akin to the GFC perhaps? To me, 100 times worse than the GFC is meaningless. Um, that, that's, you're basically talking about the, the total disintegration of the financial system yep. you know, in, in, into the Stone Age. Uh, yeah. I think you'd be talking about so, the world going off the greenback. Yeah, well, well, it'd be if it's a hundred times worse than the GFC, it'd be you know, no greenback. Yeah, yeah, it'd be no, no anything. Um, it would just yeah, be yeah. back to the barter system. But uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure that um, that uh, I think a hundred times worse than the GFC is a bit hyperbolic. Um, mm. but, it was. It was definitely hyperbolic. Yeah, I do think there's a very real risk of a of another GFC style meltdown with quite long-reaching repercussions. If it happens again, I don't think we'll bounce back as quickly as we did last time from the GFC. Now, that took a few years, but I think if we had another really bad meltdown, it might be more similar to what happened in the Great Depression with unemployment really going through the roof. Well, the levels of government debt are just too enormous to pay off in a short time. Yeah, and the 29, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but the 29 uh, crash which triggered the Great Depression, the Great Depression lasted for the bulk of the 1930s, didn't it? Correct, that's right, yeah. It was it was um, pretty much um, a decade of uh, really severe privation and it was probably the worst economic malaise that we've had in the, in the modern era, a, a lot worse than the GFC, mm. um, but you, you wouldn't say 100 times worse or anything like that. I think that there's a there's a definite risk that that'll happen. There's there's a possibility of it not being a glorious bull run, which I think we all discount, although it, that might go for a little while yet. But there's a possibility of just muddling through. That that seems to be something that does happen a lot in, yep. you know, especially when there are lots of doom and gloom predictions around that somehow we sort of muddle through. Mm. But there are at the moment there are just so many destabilizing just unknown quantities like what what's going to happen with COVID, what's going to happen geopolitically with you know the sort of seismic shifts in the power balance and so on. Yeah, well, I think um, I think we're seeing we're seeing the, de the the decline and and end of the American Empire. I think I mean that's pretty obvious. I, I, yeah, well, well, if if, if that plays out, um, yeah, that's going to be very potentially destabilizing. So. Yep. It's just impossible to tell what, what will happen, but I think there's a very good chance that something fairly bad will happen financially within the next couple of years. Mm. It, it might be completely interlinked with something else like a, you know, a health crisis, like, for instance, if the virus evolved into something far more deadly and transmissible mm. at the same time, mm. you could have a um, you know, real global holocaust yeah, much worse than the one that we're currently seeing with the um, COVID virus. So we don't know whether something like that might happen or it, it might be something to do with, um, you know, social upheavals like a war or, um, you know, something along those lines. So we don't really know, but we've, we've had a fairly benign period of history for a while now yeah. in terms of especially as, as far as the Western world goes. I, I know there are lots of areas of the world where it hasn't been like that, but in terms of where the centre of economic power is, it's been a fairly benign period since the Second World War, and uh, you never know, that could be coming to an end. 
Mm. Well, I'm sure there are academics who've looked at this, but the conditions that led to the Great Depression, the financial conditions that led to the Great Depression, caused that massive shock. And markets, I think, that the, the Wall Street pretty much went, went close to zero, didn't it? And yet they didn't have the pandemic on top of that. So if you consider that the conditions, there's similarities in, in terms of what led to the Great Depression in the late 1920s and where we are now, if there's similarities and parallels between those two things on their own, if you add in the, the pandemic, the Great Pandemic, then you know, you've just added another big layer of, of volatility and, and potential for even greater disaster. Yeah, globalisation has created great strength, but it also has potential weaknesses. And we're seeing that at the moment with COVID, with supply lines and so on, uh, where you, you've got these big chains that are only as strong as the weakest link. And uh, that's a sort of danger at the moment. Just on the subject of inflation, just a slight aside, but you've noticed the way that cars are expensive. And, and um, I've got a mate who's into four-wheel driving and camping and that sort of stuff, camper trailers and all that. And not only are caravans uh, very, very hard to get hold of and buy new, you've got to wait for ages to get a, a Jayco caravan. I think it's a, a wait of more than a year. Um, wow. But he, he was telling me that, you know, to get a secondhand, to get a Land Cruiser that's 20 years old and, and has done more than 200,000 kilometers, in some cases, you know, I think he showed me one that had done 800,000 Ks, 25 years old, they're still, they're still selling for $20,000 or more. Yeah, well, that, that, that's an that's example scarcity. of um, possessions. Yeah, possessions being a potentially valuable commodity. Mm. If supply lines get fractured either by uh, either by disease or by, by geopolitical tensions or by um, an economic collapse of some sort, mm. then uh, that's where you'll sort of look back and go, ah, I should have got myself a, a this or a that or whatever. Mm. Um, because if you're going to be riding out as much as a decade of, of tough times, it's much nicer to be doing it with, you know, a high-quality carpet and turn a nice car and uh, all those things than to be doing it with stuff that you that you don't really particularly like or... Yeah, that needs to be upgraded or needs to be serviced or... Yeah, yeah, or is falling apart, absolutely. Nobody was upgrading things during the Great Depression. I do think that we're going to pull through the the health crisis. There'll be a point where herd immunity is reached. But Ian, Ian, that that notion is actually being seriously questioned, the notion of herd immunity. I think it'll be like the Spanish flu. Eventually... And it might drag out. It could even drag out two decades. I think we'll... But looking, you know, really far ahead, mm. I'm in favour of freedom and democracy, but I'm not in favour of going into countries all over the world to so-called defend it. You know what I mean? And, it didn't work out well in Afghanistan. <laughs> well, and, you're probably thinking um, about Taiwan. Would that be a country that comes to mind? Why aren't we there instead of Afghanistan? You know, why, why has Biden signed off on bombing Somalia. And I, I, I think part of the reason is that their manufacturing economy has gone to Asia and they're relying on a war economy. And what I worry is that instead of advancing in, um, democracy and freedom, we're going to be drawn into a war advancing 
um, protecting our own interests and protecting our our perimeters. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, make, it makes sense that it's it's very hard to predict. Yeah, I, I think, and I think Australia should be very very careful about its its pronouncements at this point in time. So, I mean, I'm looking really far into the future, mm. but that could be spurred on by a crash, a financial crash that we're talking about. It could make it more and more obvious. It doesn't have to be that the greenback will fail, but apparently, I mean, people are saying that the, the issue is how, ma- how many greenbacks there are and how much of the Chinese currency there is in the world and gold and the, and the Russian economy. And the greenback has always been more than 50%. And is now approaching 50%. And if there's a crash, that could severely slide even further. Mm. So these are really, you know, the financial un- instability can lead to political instability. Absolutely. And I'm, Absolutely. Look at, yeah. look, at, look at the conditions that led to the rise of Hitler. I've even read that there's talk that the well, Americans are quite happy to have hyperinflation because that'll that'll screw the Chinese who lent them the money to start with. <laughs> a lot of countries do use inflation to inflate their way out of debt. That's such a fact. It wouldn't be the American people who'd be happy with that, though. Um, no, no, of course not. Not the yeah, people. Yeah. It's governments who have unsustainable levels of debt, and um, that's that's their um, their trick for. For paying off the debt, you just press a button on the computer and there you go, it's paid off. How far you look in a way and how you look obviously directs the conclusion that you draw, but there's plenty of things that you can look at in history. And, and I think just looking at the 1920s and then looking at the consequences of the Great Depression and then how the economic solution in a, in a funny kind of way to the Great Depression was to have World War II because war is good for business. But we've already got a war economy, ramping it up to an even harder war. Wow. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not I, supporting the idea. I'm just saying that yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of what happened. <laughs> Any closing remarks from either of you, please feel free. But I think we've, we've covered a lot of bases. It's a, a very interesting chat, as always. Really, really good. I think Guy's expertise in the area just adds to it enormously. And the fact, Guy, that, that you have some concept of probability that super helps all right well look thank thank you so much dr ian story mathematician lecturer in information systems at torrens university and guy west professional investor and chess master 